Welcome to When Movies Were Good, a laid-back discussion about all your favourite films from the silent era up until 1959. You can hear our channel's content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow all new updates and events on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please give us a thumbs up or a good review, whatever your favourite podcast channel allows for. It helps to get us in front of more people. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to another great conversation here on the podcast of When Movies Were Good with Rachel and Matt down here in Melbourne, Australia, recording at their resort studios, a.k.a. My Flat. Matt, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. All the better because of those little orange treats you had waiting for me. How do you know they were my favourite? Yeah, well, I told Matt that I'd have a snack waiting for him. Unfortunately, it was actually something he liked, so that was good. Well, yeah, I mean, those little sugar orange cubes. I mean, who who could uh, go wrong with those? They're supposed to be apricot, but, you know, I think it's just 100% sugar. But that's Oh, yeah, that's right, apricot. Yeah. I mean, there's probably not a trace of actual fruit in any of them anyway. Yeah, probably not. But I got them from my work, so at least I got a discount, which is always good. Welcome to our Joan Crawford special, our Joan Crawford double. Now we've done, we have, we've spoken about her in other films for when movies were good. Sorry, we're racking up a few episodes now, so it's. We definitely haven't done one that features one of her starring roles. Okay, I, it could have been it could have been something else, but we've got two absolute wonderful films to discuss. Two of her most famous films, two films that she was nominated for an Academy Award. And well-deserved. And well-deserved. I actually have to say I was pleasantly surprised by both of these films. They are technically film noir, especially Sudden Fear. I mean, that's a fantastic-looking film. And uh, and she's at the latter stages of her career. I mean, she did keep working right through the 60s, etc. But in terms of her being a film star, we're getting towards that sort of latter stage of her career. Not quite the straitjacket or what hap- ever happened to Baby Jane era, but we're, we're sort of edging our way up to that. So, Well, she, she went right back into the flapper era. Yes, yes. And I, I remember I was reading that. I go, what's that? And then, of course, those women with those cute little hats on and the... And she would have, yeah. And the she, really tight curls. Yeah, and the tight curls and doing the Charleston and, and the Balboa and all these sorts of old dance moves. And I believe that's kind of how she she kind of got started. So we're doing tonight uh, Mildred Pierce, 1945, and Sudden Fear, 1952 and they are technically considered film noirs so just before we go into those two films and we could spend hours talking about each of these films but for the sake of brevity we'll just um, mention the things that we liked or enjoyed or the things that we got out of these films which is what we do in our conversation so Joan Crawford being our subject of course was not born Joan Crawford she was born Lucille Lasseur and like many other very famous classic actors uh, and even actors of today, uh, was asked to change their name uh, for reasons of their management, directors, etc., etc. And after a competition, I believe, she came up with the name, or rather the audience came up with the name Joan Crawford. So that's how she got her name. And basically was a, you know, was born in Texas and then managed to get her way like most of 
actors and actresses that came up through the silent era. You know, they were vaudeville performers. They were Broadway performers. She was no different. She started working in that area. And then of course, went over to Hollywood and, you know, really campaigned to become a movie star. And through a lot of hard work, she did and was is one of the most well-known classic film stars of all time. She had four spouses, so Douglas Fairbanks Jr., the Douglas Fairbanks' son, uh, Francois Tone, Philip Terry, and Alfred Steele. And Alfred Steele was the one that she actually remained married to until he died. Of course, she had four children, and her mothering abilities are very... Controversial. Yeah, controversial. And when we talk about the highlights and lowlights of people's lives, um, maybe that that would be in her lowlights, especially if you ask her daughter, Christina. So, but that aside, that doesn't take away from the fact that she is a phenomenal actress and she certainly was one for the ages. So let's jump into our first film, which is the earlier one that she did. So this was essentially Mildred Pierce was her comeback film. So she had been working for um, one studio and had gone over to the other studio to make this film, so um, over to Warner Brothers. Once again, directed by the fantastic Michael Curtis. We have spoken about many, many films. Uh, He's worked with the greats Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, Betty Davis. You know, obviously he's the director of Casablanca and many other great films. So... Let's just go into the plot of this film. So 1945. So essentially, how would you frame this? It's like love gone wrong, money doesn't bring you everything, who done it, all wrapped up into one. Well, looking at both of the films we're discussing as a film noir, one of the because we've discussed in the past that film noir is a very hard genre to define. It's often actually not a really a genre in an academic sense because nobody can agree with what commonly defines it. But one common trope that comes up in the plotting is the concept of a femme fatale. So like, and that's like sort of in a stereotypical detective story, the alluring female that just can't stop uh, getting the protagonist into trouble and in many ways, the daughter of Joan Crawford in this film uh, plays the the device of the femme fatale, even though uh, she is her daughter. And so in both of the, the films we're discussing this week, really, although I think they're definitely film noir, they carry a lot of the familiar devices of the genre and turn them on their head. So, yeah, they're quite melodramatic, these films. They're like a soap opera almost, so... Oh, very, very much the uh, like. I just wanted to. Well, uh, personally, personally, I think uh, Vida, the daughter, could have done with a bit of corporal punishment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so essentially, um, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert. Uh, Mildred Pierce, uh, Joan Crawford plays the the lead character in this film, and you know this woman has had her husband basically walk out on her. She's lost another child. The one child that she has left is just an utter, for lack of a better term, cow. And she spends her whole life trying to prove different things to different people, build herself up from nothing, only to be essentially stabbed in the back by the person who is her closest family member. So, yeah, it's it's but it's such a it's such a beautiful film. I mean, you have music in it. You have 
you know, these sort of scenes of now, originally the novel was sort of set over sort of a 10 year period. This is set more over a five year period, but this woman really saw the highs and lows of life. You know, the husband walks out on her. She's got no money. She builds herself up. She works. She's got a daughter looking down on her, her other daughter who she gets along with quite well. She's the one that passes away. Little K wasn't, it was K. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's a heartbreaking scene. So she throws herself into the work, you know, and she just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And, but she never really experiences a high in the movie at any time. Yeah, uh, so it's tempered by some it, other thing. Yeah. Yes, even her best financial successes, they're really just a, uh, a hopeful justification to her daughter because it, it goes from simply wanting to make sure that her daughter has all the uh, little uh, opportunities and luxuries that uh, she didn't have, but more than that is that her daughter wanted to belong to this idealized class that uh, pretty much um, uh, the notion that you could have all the trappings of wealth and but it, it was dirty to uh, to, uh, to, to well yeah. to link yourself with any kind mm-hmm. of business way yeah. so it, it, like I think if uh, and in many ways she was almost trying to at the beginning pimp her mother out to a business colleague of her father's just because he was a bit off at the time exactly yeah exactly yeah the daughter wanted you know she wanted to be like part of the ruling elite she wanted to be almost like royalty and just be born into it she didn't actually understand the concept of well the mother needs to go out and work and everything all of the you know accoutrement all of everything the house she has at the end everything I mean these people were living well beyond their means uh, and Mildred just learned that every step of the way, like nothing was ever going to be good enough for this daughter. And she was the femme fatale in the movie because she was the one guilty of the murder of the, the, the husband. Well, thinking back to Gone with the Wind and sort of how Scarlett O'Hara deals with the transition from the reality of how her wealth was generated, being taken away from her mm. in many ways, I find her character to be much uh, to be much better of uh, of heart than uh, than Vida because yeah. Vida would would uh, stoop to it stoop to anything to uh, to throw people and throw people away that um when they're no longer useful to her. Yeah, exactly. I I was happy to see Butterfly McQueen in this film. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I heard the voice and I thought. Hang on, is that Butterfly McQueen? And she's just such a wonderful presence in any film that she's in. And also it just goes to show you, you know, still the class, you know, the the issues of the time where a lot of their help were still sort of black people mm-hmm. and, you know, they were working and all that sort of stuff. But that was that was of the time. So I don't think it's anything to look down at the film on. And also the lead character was a working class person herself and she actually gave stability and stuff to Butterfly McQueen's character. Yeah, well, despite what the daughter aspires to, they're really a fairly ordinary middle class family, yeah. uh, even though she says things on the lines of, 
haven't you brought enough shame to us by baking cakes for everyone? Yeah, and when she gave Butterfly McQueen's character her waitress uniform from the day job she had waitressing, she the daughter, Vader, who was wonderfully played by Anne Blythe, I believe her name was, and she had a very long and varied career. She actually had five children, so... She's still alive today. Yeah, she's... Yeah, she was... Uh, she's now, what, taken over from Olivia de Havilland. Isn't she, like, the longest-lived classic uh, actress now. Wouldn't would be far off. Yeah. She's like 95, I think. Yeah. So I think she's now, once we lost Olivia, she she's now become so Anne Blythe. But she had an amazing catalogue of films herself, um, also doing singing and performing as well. But she was married and had five kids. So I think that sort of prematurely ended her career. I think she actually made her last film in the late 50s but she was fantastic in this film mind you a lot tended to uh sort of uh, go off the um big time by then anyway yeah well that's exactly right you had sort of and it hasn't really changed for actresses today either you know if you can't migrate yourself over to character-based roles which in fairness to Joan Crawford she did do um, but some other people just for whatever reason, like I, I wouldn't really imagine Marilyn Monroe have got acting past 40 or so. I mean, she was 36 when she passed away, so. Well, history's full of surprises. Is, who's, yeah. who's to say what could have happened? Maybe, maybe she's doing some very surprising interpretations in Heaven Vaudeville. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure Marilyn had a lot more to give, unfortunately. just It just wasn't her time. But Mildred Pierce is... I love the fact that the the film is named after the female character in this. She is someone who was very much against, I guess, the prescribed notions for women at the time, like when her husband walks out on her rather than just maybe going to family or friends or what could she do as a single woman with two children? She went out and she taught herself a trade and she worked and she worked her way up. And I mean, that's a very admirable thing. So all through it, she was continuing to come back and try again and just getting, you know, problems left, right and centre. And it continues her screen tradition because right from the beginning, she'd been known for roles of rags to riches. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, this was one role where it kind of showed that money is only part of the the constant struggle that is achieving happiness. That's right. So if we go over to the other film that we're going to discuss of Jones today, we're going into another film about love, money, betrayal, whodunit, you know, all the typical sort of film noir and, you know, there's a lot of, like, shadows across the face. I mean, this film's a beautiful film. I mean, it's stunning. Yes, I I love my shadows. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, this film was... My screen shadows. Um, yeah, because Matt and I didn't know too much about this film, but it was an easily accessible one for us to watch because sometimes we think of films and they're not the easiest to find on streaming platforms. So I think we had one issue where we couldn't find one of the films that we were going to do, so we always make sure that we can find them. And this one came up and it was easy to access, so we are like, okay, well, this, this will fit in well with Mildred Pierce, and it really did. It is a different kind of a film, Um, David Miller directed this film. The wonderful Elmer Bernstein did the music to this film. Very sort of simple plot. And someone who I'm more familiar with, um, having grown up with him um, as an older actor doing comedies like City Slickers and things like that, Jack Palance. I didn't even know. I saw him come on the screen. I'm like, hang on, who's the male lead in this film? Jack Palance. (laughs) I'm used to him, you know, with, you know, hosting Ripley's Believe It or Not and other things from the 80s. So it was actually lovely to see him 
in this role. And he, everyone in this film is really well cast in this film. So just to give the audience a little bit of an overview of Sudden Fear, definitely, obviously, we'll be talking about what happens in the movie. So spoiler alert, and also just get yourself out there and see this one, because this is fantastic, this film. So um, Sudden Fear, uh, again, we're 19, we've gone over to 1952 now, and it had Jack Palance in it and Gloria Graham. Beautiful cinematography by Charles Lang and distributed by RKO Pictures. So 110-minute running time. So um, I think Mildred Pierce is a bit longer, but there was a bit more to get through in that. So essentially Crawford and Matt and I are sort of theatre people, so I appreciated the start of this film. I think Matt would have as well. And essentially Myra Hudson is a very successful Broadway playwright And she's actually an heiress in her own right as well. So everyone's like, why are you even bothering to write plays? You don't need to. I hate her for two different reasons. Yeah, she's got money and she's got talent as well. And at the start of the film, we see her interacting, you know, is that a common thing that the writer sits in on the rehearsals? Or maybe back then it was. I thought now it was a bit more taboo. Well, it's quite clear that she has a lot of um, uh, buying power, shall we say, in the theatre scene. I... It's hard to say because most uh, plays I've I've been involved with, the writers have been (laughs) dead for quite a while. Yeah. Um, And even the one, um, Matt and I are involved with a local theatre company and there was one play that we did do and it was a local play and the playwright lived up the road. And, yeah, he only came to, that was Patient 12, and he only came to the performances. He didn't sit there at all, but maybe because the play had been out for a certain amount of time and it wasn't a new play. So... Uh, but also, as often happens in films, uh, a certain character may have to embody what is in reality a few different production roles yeah. because uh, uh, really Crawford's uh, person is acting more like a producer than a playwright. Yeah, and I suppose she's got the cachet. For, it's, I guess it's kind of like Andrew Lee Webber. He'd be sitting through all of the rehearsals and stuff for any new project he had out because he's now of that standard where he wants to oversee it. Whereas in his younger days, maybe he just wrote the music and the lyrics with his partner and gave it off to whoever was going to direct it, and that was it. And Olivia and Vivian Lee were very heavily involved directly in the financing of a lot of their uh, productions of Shakespeare and their tours of that quite often to uh, their own financial risk. Yeah, so so that was that was an interesting thing at the start. So so her character is this very successful playwright. At the start, they're casting her new play and Jack Palance is playing a guy called Lester Blaine and he is auditioning for it. Everyone thinks he's great for the role. She doesn't like him for the role. She doesn't want him in the role. So he's out. He says some harsh words to her as he leaves where they're rehearsing. As passes for harsh words at that time. (laughs) Yeah, sort of quoting um, some earlier issue that he saw somewhere or was it? A quote from, yeah, there was some quote or something he said to her about basically don't judge a book by its cover type thing. He also talked about this painting of Casanova. Oh, because, yes, Casanova, uh, yeah. Because she, she regarded him as not a convincing romantic role and, uh, like, he was saying, okay, look at this painting of Casanova in San, Fr- yes. San Francisco and you see this man with all the warts and stuff and I'm thinking, you're probably not helping your case by saying <laughs> Casanova looked warty. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah, so he was saying that, yeah, basically don't judge a book by its cover, look at Casanova sort of thing. Anyway, so Joan's character, Myra, then meets up again with him while she's travelling and, of course, one thing leads to another. 
They fall in love against everyone's better judgment, including her own. She gets married. Then, and obviously it's clear to me that he's a bit younger than her. Would you say, would you say that? Yes. It was, I was having a bit of trouble telling whether they've got the big name of Crawford and they're trying to sort of youthify her or Mm. if there's meant to be a bit of an age difference to sort of sow that seed of distrust because, you know, the younger man going for an older woman, Mm. will he have an agenda? Yeah, exactly. Although I was reading that when she did accept the role of Mildred Pierce, other actresses like Norma Shearer and a few others didn't want the role because having the daughter Vader would have aged them and she was fine with that. So I'm assuming if she was fine with that, and this is seven years on from that, then she probably would have been okay with being the older person. And kind of Vader almost, it's. I sort of found for Vader the other way, like sort of Crawford baby-fied her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I get what you mean there. And so actually... Well, it's a real word, baby-fied. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, you know, playing the older woman and the silly um, heiress who, you know, is with this. And, of course, all that turns out to be true. And then um, she finds out by way of a recording that Jack Palance, her husband is essentially with somebody else and they're going to murder her. And there's quite a – and then she decides to fight back basically. So he's – you know, she's not going to take it lying down. She comes up with this really elaborate plan, which is really interesting, and uh, everything starts going all over the place at the end. Can she do it? Can she not? And there's a big climactic ending, which I thought was quite interesting and entertaining. Yeah, and like – because film noir is often known for having rather complex plots and how we've approached it for these two different films in Mildred Pierce, it's kind of sort of a lot of reverse chronology all over the place. We start at one stage of the Mm storyline and then they go into memory recollection and then back and forth for sudden fear. The film does uh, follow a conventional linear narrative. It's one event after the other. Yep. Uh, but the how complex the characters try to plot their own time mm-hmm. uh, gets themselves into a real mess. So that's another way to follow that genre trope. Yeah, I, I, I probably enjoyed Sudden Fear a bit more than Mildred Pierce because it did follow that linear timeline. I don't mind films that sort of is the character looking back or retelling what's happened or different versions of the same story. But sometimes it's nice to just sort of sit there and start somewhere and finish somewhere. And that's what I really appreciated about Sudden Fear. I also thought that, um, you know, some people thought in some of the reviewers of the time maybe thought her reaction, so her character in Sudden Fear when she did actually hear the recording where she discovered her beloved husband's plan to get rid of her. A pretty stupid way to get yourself caught out. (laughs) That perhaps she wasn't emotional enough or something, but I don't think that that's very fair. Like she was sort of a level-headed you know, businesswoman in a sense too. So she just sort of switched into survival mode and thought, I'm going to get you before you get me. And hence the reason she's able to sort of just breathe out at the end and just walk off like a a weight's lifted off her shoulder when um, her husband and the mistress actually die from an unfortunate accident, which she's in the middle of, but she didn't cause but did cause, so to speak. So, yeah, that was a very – and like all of those, you know, it's almost like the director did so well with using the streets of San Francisco in that climactic part because they're so hilly and slopey all over the city and just the car chasing and the use of light and shadow. Was yeah, great. it's a car chase on a 
car chase on a whole different level because at that time the cliche would have been to have somebody ride by in a on a flat plane in a car with a machine gun yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the San Francisco and all those crazy hills, like you said, it uh, literally turned everything on its head. Yeah, uh, it you know it was, and she was again she was nominated for an Academy Award, and that Jack Palance was great. Um, as I said, I you know started when I started going to the movies as a teenager. Uh, Jack Palance was in a very famous comedy film called City Slickers, and he actually won his first Academy Award for that, playing this character called Curly. And there was a big um, whole. He'd have been quite old by that time, yeah, wouldn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, and there was this whole thing when he accepted the Academy Award after having been because he was nominated for for Sudden Fear, um, finally winning the Academy Award for a comedy role. He um, came up to Billy Crystal, who was hosting, and then started um, doing push-ups with one hand just to show how virile he still was. <laughs> and that was a running joke for the rest of the show. Um, that the writers and Billy Crystal turned that into a running joke for the rest of the show. But if you ever th- want to see a funny acceptance of an Academy Award, watch uh, Jack Palance's um, um, accepting it for City Slickers and start doing push-ups on the stage. And that was a running joke at the Academy Awards for many years to come. But, um, you know, he was quite involved with TV and stuff when I was growing up in the 80s. He hosted a show called Ripley's Believe It or Not and he had this, you know, very kind of voice. So when I saw him... I had to, I'm like, is that Jack Palant? Oh my gosh. And um, obviously he has a much longer ethnic surname, but which is, which the start of it is similar to Palant's. And he was a boxer and all sorts of things. I think that's where he initially got the name Jack from. So he does have that very sort of hard fighter type look to it. Yeah, he's got that. He definitely has those Eastern European sort of cheekbones and that's Vladimir Penacek or something along those lines or Palacek or something, but Palance kind of comes comes from that. So, and then Jack, I guess, is just a good generic name. So, uh, so yeah, he definitely somebody who came through um, the school of hard knocks as well, and and ended up in Hollywood. And and this was really the film that kind of launched him off into a great career. Obviously, he did westerns, he did all sorts of things, and worked with many of the greats too. So it was nice to actually get in and see Joan Crawford. Apparently she was one of the most annoying people to work with in Hollywood. And she had a lot of, I think, was it Michael Curtis um, on Mildred Pierce? You know, she came in to audition for it and he's like, nah, I don't want to work with this has been. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. But, that was um, mean. Yeah, but um, she she did prove herself and she could act. There's no absolutely no doubt about that. She was fantastic in whatever happened to Baby Jane because she essentially had the straight role in that film and Betty Davis could be as camp and over the top as she wanted, but she had to sort of anchor the whole performances into some sort of reality and she did that very well. So, you know, sometimes in a film the person that's doing the straight role, they deserve just as much acclaim as someone who gets to do the high camp really character-driven roles. Um, well, in Costello's Abic- mm-hmm. time, actually, the straight man of the traditional comedy duo pair usually got paid more. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, not to bring him up or anything, but you know I'm going to. You know, Larry Hagman was the straight man and I dream of Jeannie, and apparently he was a bit resentful of that. But there you go. But, you know, without him... Having that role, you know, everyone's got their their parts to play, so not everyone can be the cute genie popping out of the bottle. Yes, well, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think we're both glad that Larry Hagman didn't try and take on that role. Oh, well, I wouldn't have minded it, but, of course, that's just me. Probably with a slightly different outfit. <laughs> 
So um, uh, definitely uh, I'm a fan of both of these films and I would definitely recommend both of them and probably watch them in the order that we did, watch them, what, uh, well, in the order they were made rather. So watch Mildred Pierce and then Sudden Fear because you can sort of see her tacking over to those kind of older older roles as she got older and um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is one of my favourite films. So that's – I haven't seen Straight Jacket yet, which is the horror movie she made after that, so I, I still I still need to see that. And um, the, the, the unfortunate thing about um, Joan Crawford is, you know, really her daughter Christina wrote that book Mummy Dearest or Mommy Dearest, as they say in the US, and um, – there was a very famous um, telly movie uh, with Faye Dunaway and Diana Scarwood in it made in the early 80s based on that. And who's to say? I mean, the two, two older adopted kids said she was a nightmare, but her younger children said that she was okay. And then Matt and I... I, think, I yeah. think one thing we'll have to bear in mind, though, is that it's the the book yeah. we should be focusing on because everybody, including the author of that uh, book, said straight away that the movie Mummy Dearest was just a camped up comedy on its own. So you can't really yeah. Although uh, Faye Dunaway it. did do a good job in that film, and she certainly came across. But um, but like uh, no wire hangers were harmed in the making of this yeah. film, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So um, Christina's account was contradicted, but there's no doubt that her and her mother had you know obviously Joan didn't have her own natural children so she was adopting children when she wasn't really eligible to because she wasn't married and she had to go out of state and then the two younger children Matt and I had researched came from a very bad situation over in Tennessee with the woman over there that was child trafficking and everything so well yeah she basically had the uh, legitimate legitimate agency but this woman but uh, she made herself into a millionaires by upscaling um and selling children often f- from false pretenses like kidnapping and everything yeah. uh because to give them to very high profile clients in other states because it was easier to get away with yeah. outside of her own borders yeah, um, actually, we, we may discuss that case in our other podcast at a later stage, so keep an eye. A glimpse eye. of hell where where that lady is suddenly frying right now. Yeah. <laughs> so that was our Joan, um, the first of many, actually. You could do many about Joan Crawford, but she's definitely a talented force to be reckoned with. She did work hard. She earned her place. Um, obviously, with actually any classic movie star, if you went into their background, uh, there's, you know, even my beloved Ray, you know, um, there's different things in their background. And all of them, you know, did come from sort of often very humble beginnings. And that does play around with your psyche when you become very famous. Most people of that period would fall far short of modern parenting standards, though. Like, it's well known that Bing Crosby used corporal punishment. Although it must be remembered that at that time, basically every parent mm. did. I'm not condoning it, but... Yeah, uh, but that was yeah, um, of the time. Yeah, that's how things were done back then. So, yeah, and uh, so it's hard to know. But Christina Crawford is still alive, but all of her siblings, I was reading, have actually passed away, and she was the eldest. So um, she she managed to survive anyway, and she was an actress in her own right for many years too. So... Anyway, so you just have to take the good with the bad and just in, in, enjoy the um, the films that Joan and it was it was great to see these two films finally and cross those ones off the list. So actually, Matt, do you remember the ones we're going to be doing 
Angela Lansbury for the next When Movies Were Good. Yes, indeed. So we're going to be doing Court Jester with the fantastic Danny Kaye. And which was the other one we were doing? Uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray. So based on Oscar Wilde's only novel. Actually, there was a trashy 80s film with Anthony Perkins in it about Dorian Gray, but I don't think it's going to be as good as the one that we're going to watch. Of course you would know that. (laughs) Yeah, I... Yes, yes, I think pretty sure Anthony Perkins was in that one. So, so join us for our Angela Lansbury. And she's still with us. Uh, yeah, she is. She's uh, getting close on to being one of the oldest um, actresses around. Yeah, definitely. Anne Blythe, who we mentioned before, she definitely is Angela Lansbury. And I think there's a few other people out there as well. I mean, obviously Olivia was the eldest one, and we lost her um, not too long ago. But you know, fair crack of the whip, as we say here. Yeah, and we know her for things like Murder, She Wrote and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Uh, really, I didn't watch many superhero films when I was young, but I loved Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And so for, for my idea, the perfect screen hero was a witch that enchanted a bunch of ar- armor suits to attack Nazis. <laughs> I actually, I haven't seen that film. I must watch it. it. Sounds sounds very entertaining. So join us for Angela Lansbury and then we'll... Probably have another one and then our Christmas special, I think. We're kind of getting close to that time of the year. Yeah, we'll have to pick some Christmas favourites and then put on the eggnog and eat some gingerbread. And me singing that about 20 million times a day. Everyone's at work will be like, "Uh, can you send her home, please? (laughs) We'll have to release our own Christmas single. I think so. I think it's coming. So thanks, guys. Really appreciate you checking in with us. Always love to have you along for our fun field conversations. And as usual, and in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and have a good one.